welcome back to the From Heaven to Eternity podcast. I'm Brian, and in the last episode, we started the Sermon on the Mount. We made it all the way through the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5, and today we're picking up where we left off. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 are referred to as the Beatitudes, and they describe some of the characteristics that followers of Jesus, that kingdom members, are called to pursue. Jesus is clear that these characteristics are for all Christians. They're not just for some special race of cyborg super-Christians. They should create a mindset in us that sets the stage for the rest of the teachings here. In humility, we should receive what Jesus presents over the next two and a half chapters. Jesus then provides two examples of how kingdom members are to interact with the rest of the world. Christians are to be salt and light to the world. And being salt and light to the world means Christians must be engaged with the world. The rest of the chapter is long, so let's just dive in. Jesus calls on his followers to preserve God's law and display his characteristics to the world. And then, in verses 17 through 19, he reminds his followers that he is the ultimate fulfillment of God's law and the upholder of all of God's standards. We need Jesus because only Jesus embodies goodness and upholds what is required for a right relationship with God. The phrases law and prophets or law were common Jewish ways to refer to the entire Hebrew Bible. So in verse 17, Jesus is saying that he will bring about the intended fulfillment, the intended completion of God's redemptive plan, which we can trace throughout the entire Old Testament. When we read words like iota or dot in our English Bibles, it's simply referring to the smallest symbols of Hebrew writing, and it's signifying that we can't pick and choose the portions of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and the portions that still need to be fulfilled by someone else. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, and he is the only one who reconciles God's people to God. It should also underline to Christians that reading the Old Testament is relevant. All of scripture is given to us by God and is profitable. It's also significant that Jesus says this right before taking aim at some of the religious leaders of the time, and also right before he pivots to the interpretations of certain Old Testament commands in verses 21 through 48. In chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist take the Pharisees to task over their hypocrisy and their assumption that they were saved by simply being born into a Jewish family. At the start of chapter 5, we talked about biblical righteousness being a longing to look like Christ in how we live and how we treat others. Here, in verse 20, Jesus calls Christians to a righteousness that is greater than any righteousness shown by the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament better than just about everybody else. Most probably had the first few books of the Bible memorized, and they also prided themselves on acting morally before others. So what does Jesus mean when he requires Christians to have a righteousness exceeding even the Pharisees? The Old Testament has over 600 commandments and prohibitions. Jesus is not saying that we win if we check more boxes than the Pharisees did. We're not taking an SAT, so no need to bring your number two pencils. Stott says it's not so much that Christians succeed in keeping 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being righteousness of the heart. People at work know that I'm a Christian, 
and I can't count the number of times one of them curses or whatever and then looks at me and says, I'm sorry, man, I shouldn't have used that language around you. Jesus isn't calling us to change how we say things. He isn't about behavior modification. He's about heart transformation that overflows into lifestyle changes. This is about letting Jesus and the Holy Spirit work in you to make you more and more like him. In the book of Deuteronomy, God, God calls us to have circumcised hearts that are changed because we follow him. In Jeremiah 31, God says he will put his law in us and write it on our hearts. And in Ezekiel 36, God promises that his spirit will dwell in our hearts, allowing us to walk according to his statutes. Unlike the Pharisees, who focused on the outward appearance of rule following, God calls us to change from within and promises to perform the required heart surgery on us that will allow that change to occur. D.A. Carson says that Christ's way is more challenging and more demanding, as well as more rewarding than any legal system can ever be. Verses 21 through 26, Jesus quotes a popular known commandment against murdering others. He's pulling from the Ten Commandments here, specifically the Sixth Commandment. He is agreeing with the commandment that the act of murder is wrong, but he takes it a step further, and just like the verses above, Jesus makes this a heart issue. It's not just the literal act of murder, it's having an angry heart overflowing out of you instead of having a humble heart that reflects the characteristics found in the Beatitudes. The Apostle John stresses this again in 1 John 3.15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. Jesus urges Christians toward conflict resolution and reconciliation in verses 23-26. through 26. In ancient Jewish culture, probably the most important day of the year was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. This day is described in detail in Leviticus chapter 16, and it foreshadows the work of Jesus, whose sacrifice once made atonement for all sins, past, present, and future. But what I've learned is that the day before the high priest offered a sacrifice to God for the atonement of Israel's sins against God, the people were called to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with other people they'd wronged. This day before Yom Kippur is termed Erev Yom Kippur. Before the most important Jewish day, the day where the past year's sins were atoned for, people were called to seek forgiveness from other people. It's almost like Jesus is saying, don't think of reconciliation with others as something you can only do on this one big day before you worship the Lord. No, it's a reconciliation you should seek any time before you worship God. He's underlining that any time you go before the Lord in worship or relationship, it should have gravity associated with it, and that there should also be a gravity associated with how we approach all of our other relationships. The ESV Bible translates Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice that Jesus puts the highest urgency possible on this call. Before you even go before God in worship, seek out reconciliation with your brothers and sisters. In addition to trying to fix relationships that we know are broken, we should take time before God to pray for him to reveal to us relationships we didn't even realize needed fixing. 
Some of the most humbling events for me have occurred when God showed me cracks in relationships that I didn't even realize I had created. Verses 27 through 30 address everybody's favorite taboo subject, lust. Jesus is once again pulling from the Ten Commandments. Everybody usually jumps to the Seventh Commandment against adultery, but Jesus seems to be tying that commandment with the Tenth Commandment against coveting also. Verses 27 and 28 are Jesus again taking aim at the heart behind something, not just the literal wording of the commandments. This can apply to a number of situations. A man looking lustfully at a woman, someone intentionally indulging in sexual fantasies about someone else. It can even apply to the act of dressing inappropriately because you covet the lustful attention of others. I'm pretty sure that every woman listening to this podcast has been in the uncomfortable situation where they thought a man was looking creepily and lustfully at them. I'm also pretty sure that every dude listening to this podcast has been in the uncomfortable situation where a woman is seeking sexual attention through behavior and dress. These examples can apply across genders. Women can look lustfully at men, and men can also flaunt certain features sexually. I was just giving examples. I'm not talking about noticing that someone looks pretty or dressing up to look nice. It's not about wearing blinders or adhering to a dress code. That's taking what I'm saying out of context out of context and to extremes I don't condone. But if we're being honest, we know in our hearts, because it's a heart issue, when we are seeking out or dishing out lustful attention. Jesus is also not saying that sexual desire is, a, is bad in every situation. There is an entire book of the Bible revolving around biblical sexuality. In the Song of Solomon, sexual desire is actually compared to fire. I would say that's appropriate because fire is great when it exists within the correct boundaries and can have terrible consequences when outside of that boundary. As long as the fire stays inside my fireplace or my grill, it is vibrant and healthy and purposeful. But if I were to start setting fire to my curtains, then that's not so healthy anymore and can actually cause a lot of damage. As if the first couple verses weren't awkward enough, in verses 29 through 30, we get Jesus talking about removing our eyes or cutting off our members. I want to be very, 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 very clear here. Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. Do not do what Origen of Alexandria did in the second century and make yourself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying that. I am not saying that. Jesus is intentionally mentioning taking drastic measures to guard yourself against the sins of lust and coveting. It is up to each of us to determine what situations we must avoid or what countermeasures we need to learn to employ against this. But we all need to take these precautions seriously. Turning from something is one of the keys of repentance. Let's zoom out and think about this from the full perspective of this sermon. Jesus is offering instruction for the members of his kingdom. He's giving us character traits calling us to salt and light, instructing us to aim for unity and reconciliation, and in general, calling us to be a community that reflects Jesus and grows more Jesus' disciples. Theologically, it's about idolatry, right? When we are coveting things and acting after things in ways where they become our idols, we have a problem. Galatians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, your members which are on the earth, sexual immorality, uncleanness, depraved passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
These teachings are also extremely practical for maintaining a healthy and growing biblical community. It's about our internal heart issues, but it's also about creating a safe space for all the people who are part of the kingdom or could become a part of the kingdom. Verses 31 and 32 speak to divorce practices, and I will preface all of this by saying that divorce and remarriage practices are almost as numerous as the number of church denominations we have today. I am not going to try to tackle that issue here. It is complex and would take too long for the time I have. I'll start by reading the full passage Jesus quotes from, which talks about divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, then it shall be, if she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some unseemly thing in her, then he shall write her a bill of divorce, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. When she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. If the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorce and give it in her hand and send it and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband die who took her to be his wife, her former husband who sent her away, may not again take her to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not cause the land to sin which Yahweh your God gives you for an inheritance. The Deuteronomy passage is really talking about marrying someone, getting a divorce, that person then marrying and divorcing someone else, and then you remarrying the original person all over again. A lot of commentators point to Jesus as addressing a Jewish debate of that time period, and Bloomberg notes that there is no indication here that a second marriage, even following an illegitimate divorce, is seen as permanently adulterous. Continuing with the theme Jesus develops throughout this sermon, I would argue that the main focus to this passage is about the heart behind your actions. Divorce should be a serious thing that comes about because of serious situations and after prayerful attempts at reconciliation. Marriage isn't something you fall into and out of like your sixth grade crush. Did you get married for the right reasons? Did you get divorced for the right reasons? Are you getting remarried for the right reasons? Have you sought forgiveness from God in areas where this wasn't the case? This passage is not about being eternally damned for your past decisions, or about you having to live with a weight around your neck for the rest of your life. It is about the sanctity of marriage, which is meant to be the closest thing on this earth to the relationship between Christ and his church, so it should be taken seriously. Verses 33 through 37 are some of my favorites to study because they might be the most universally misunderstood. It's the section about not taking oaths, or some translations might say against swearing falsely. Contrary to what a lot of people say, it is not about the use of certain special words that our society might deem as curse words. Yes, we should avoid using harsh language when speaking to and about each other, but this section is concerned with something that was more common back then namely taking oaths. Technical oaths aren't something our Western society engages in frequently, except when you're in a court of law, and Jesus isn't saying you can't be sworn in. He's talking about something different, and I'll get to it in a minute. Okay, so maybe you've been feeling a little frustrated by some of the previous teachings, like, man, this is heavy stuff. You might hear something like, don't take oaths, and feel like you can exhale. Like, dude, I haven't taken an oath since like the third grade when I swore on my mama with my fingers crossed. I think we read over this section too much without getting at the core of what's going on. 
So I want to focus on this message. Back in Jesus' time, in Israel, people would swear by all sorts of things. Some would swear by their own heads, some by Jerusalem, some by the temple. You swore by certain things to underline how much someone should believe you. Believe it or not, there were actual rules for how to swear rightly and how to swear sinfully. One website commenting on Jewish oath-taking codes says, The rabbis taught in some respects vows are more rigorous than oaths, in others, oaths are more vigorous than vows. Vows are more rigorous in that their liability attaches even to commandments. On the other hand, oaths are more rigorous than vows in that their liability attaches also to things not essential, which is not the case with vows. D.A. Carson describes one rabbi who said, that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. What all these rules did was set limits to how far you could take your lie and get away with it without any punishment. Like, oh, I just swore by Jerusalem, so you can't possibly hold me accountable for it. It's not like I swore toward Jerusalem or anything. Jesus is stepping into that situation, and he's saying, this is about carrying yourself with honesty and integrity. And that message is still super applicable today. Members of the kingdom should carry themselves in a way where you shouldn't have to justify your words with empty phrases like I swear or cross my heart or whatever. Christians should live by honest words and follow through with honest actions so that people recognize the genuineness of what is being said. It's about having a heart that overflows into a lifestyle that creates trust with other people. In the next four verses, Jesus focuses on a common misapplication of Jewish law during that time. Verses 38 through 42 caution against misapplying the command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to our own personal relationships. I'll start by pulling three Old Testament passages that refer to this practice. Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25, when talking about personal injury laws, says, if men fight and hurt a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely and yet no harm follows, he shall be surely fined as much as the woman's husband demands and the judges allow. But if any harm follows, then you must take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 17-21 says, He who strikes any man mortal, mortally shall surely be put to death. He who strikes an animal mortally shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, show it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured someone, so shall it be done to him. He who kills an animal shall make it good, and he who kills a man shall be put to death. In Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 through 21, talks about the testimony of judicial witnesses. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness is a false witness, and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had thought to do to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from the midst of you. Those who remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil in the midst of you. Your eyes shall not pity, life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. 
Each of these passages are about proportional responses in criminal cases involving judges. They are not about personal vendettas and revenge. If the mandatory minimum for heroin possession is six months, we let the justice system enforce that. We don't grab some druggie off the street and lock him in our basement for six months. Jesus is again going after our hearts and telling us to let go of our selfish need to retaliate just so we feel better. Let the law do what the law was meant to do, and let our personal relationships be filled with forgiveness and sacrifice. Thomas Schreiner says that the standard for civil justice must not be applied to personal relationships. Now again, I want to be clear. Christians are still called to resist evil and wickedness when appropriate. This verse is not calling a woman into an abusive relationship to stay there and to take more punishment. It's also not calling us to say that we can't make changes to our legal system because there might be certain things that are unjust about them. No, there, is absolutely, there are absolutely situations that you have to remove yourself from or have someone else step in and diffuse or make changes to. But Jesus is commanding us not to take the law into our own hands. Don't play judge, jury, and executioner in your own private vigilante justice league. Jesus then instructs his followers to exhibit abundant generosity in verses 40 to 42, above and beyond the generosity required by the law. Bloomberg underlines that one must be willing to give as collateral an outer garment more than what the law could require, which was merely an inner garment. D.A. Carson notes that an an ordinary Roman soldier could legally commandeer a civilian to help, for example, to carry his luggage for a prescribed distance. Jesus is saying, don't just carry it exactly as long as you are mandated to and then dump the bags and run. No, go above and beyond for those who ask. Jesus' followers have to be willing to give up their rights. That's how we truly exemplify salt and light and turning the other cheek. The last section of chapter 5 picks up from the previous verses about how a Christian should not retaliate and should give generously, even when that means sacrificing your own rights. But even more than that, a Christian should seek to love both your friends and your enemies. Jesus starts this section by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The love your neighbor part is taken out of Leviticus 19. You shall surely not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. But that last part about hating your enemy, that's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus is actually taking the religious leaders of the time to task because they had added that last part into their own verbal traditions. It was a complete misrepresentation of the Old Testament law. Exodus 23.5 even calls the Israelites to help your enemy. If you see the donkey of him you, who hates you fallen down under his burden, don't leave him. You shall surely help him with it. According to Carson, the Jewish group called the Essians even had a common phrase, love the brave brothers, hate the outsider. Jesus is utterly rebuking this line of thought as unbiblical. Instead of making up religious-sounding wisdom, it's probably worth quoting Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, which say, 
If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on his head, and Yahweh will reward you. Jesus compares people who only love the people they like to tax collectors and pagans, two groups despised by the Israelites for extorting their own citizens and worshiping false gods. Blumberg says, Almost all people look after their own. The true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat or persecute them. The final verse of the chapter translates something along the lines of, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It is invoking a couple verses in the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 11, 44, and 45, Leviticus 19.2, and Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7, 8, and 26, all of which call God's people to be holy because the Lord God of Israel is holy. That last verse even starts to outline why. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and have set you apart from the peoples that you shall be mine. You need to recognize that only Jesus is perfect. And our only path to a right relationship with God the Father is through God the Son. Jesus is not calling us to a standard we can never uphold. In fact, the Greek word that gets translated into perfect, teleos, can also be used to mean mature or developed. This is a challenge from Jesus to grow in our faith and our actions, to live lives of repentance, to have our hearts transformed and to allow that heart transformation to overflow into the, con the characteristics we present to the world. For Christians to recognize God as the definer of good, repent, and stand apart from the rest of the world. Hey, we did it. We finished chapter 5. Next episode, we'll pick up with chapter 6. It's a shorter chapter, so we should be able to get through the whole thing. I'll try to post some additional content on these verses to the blog, so check that out or follow us on Facebook to keep up to date. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.